The projector starts, and so begins this episode of Movie Nights and Matinees, the podcast for people who enjoy movies from when we actually had to go to the movies. I'm your host, Bill Groves, and this is episode 27, Writ Large Screen, Agatha Christie, in which my guest and I discuss adaptations of works by one of the most celebrated mystery writers of the 20th century and beyond. So sit back, enjoy, and if you're in a hotel or some form of mass transit, you might want to keep a wary eye on your fellow travelers. You're always in the right place to hear threats and plots, Monsieur Poirot. Hmm? Put it down to a gift, if you will. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. You know, lovers of murder mysteries will be well familiar with the name Agatha Christie, whose works have given countless readers their suspense fix for over a century. In short order, her writings began to have the same effect on theater audiences and inevitably movie audiences as well. Joining me all the way from the UK is author Mark Aldrich, whose book, Agatha Christie on Screen, documents the adaptations of her stories, novels, and plays to both the big and small screens, though our conversation will, of course, be primarily focused on the big screen. Unfortunately, Jim Reed isn't available to join us today, despite being an Agatha Christie fan, as he's currently occupied with the Kansas Silent Film Festival. Nevertheless, Mark, welcome to Movie Nights and Matinees. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited because it's quite a long time since I wrote this book. It's been quite nice to revisit some of it, actually, to to remind myself some of the films I haven't seen for a few years. Oh, good. Then, well, nevertheless, you're still going to be schooling me because uh, although I have a what I think is a respectable general knowledge of Agatha Christie, I can't say that uh, I've ever focused on on her work, either literary or or cinematic. Uh, in fact, I've only read one Agatha Christie novel which was a Hercule Poirot, and <laughs> any guesses as to which one it was? Well, was it Murder on the Orient Express by any chance? No, no, it, this, oh. one, this one has not been filmed as yet, and I don't know that it ever will be necessarily. Oh, is it Curtain? That's the one. Yeah. Oh. All right, but, but no spoilers here. No. All right, well, to begin with, why don't you just give us an idea of your general background uh, as an author, as a person, and and so forth. Let's get acquainted. Sure. I was uh, born in Devon in the UK, uh, same county as Agatha Christie was born. And when I went to university, I studied uh, English literature and film and eventually did my PhD about the early years of television in the UK, basically the invention of television in the UK. And so that's sort of been my crossover for a long time, really. Screen histories, literature and film. Uh, you know, just generally. So uh, Agatha Christie on screen, looking at the history of that, really was a nice link up for all of the things that that captured my interest. But I mean, I've been an Agatha Christie fan forever, really, but I'd sort of avoided writing about her for a long time because I didn't want it to become work. You know, if you really love something, 
you don't want to make it something that's a chore. But thankfully, it's never quite worked out like that because well, it's interesting, Bill, that you were saying that you're not a no, maybe an aficionado of Agatha Christie particularly. And I always feel sort of no one is because there's just so much. <laughs> like there's, there's, uh, you know, I'll speak to scholars who specialise on her theatre work, for example, and realise how much they know that I don't, or people who specialise in her background and her biography. And, you know, this is all stuff that I feel I know pretty well. And then you discover someone else really digging deep into to things that are brand new. So there's always stuff to discover about her, uh, which is really exciting for me. Yeah. Um, well, what was your earliest exposure to her work and what was it about it that captured your interest? Well, it was it it would have been some of the screen adaptations. So it would have been probably David Suchet playing Poirot on television, which started in 1989 when I was seven years old. And my mum's an Agatha Christie fan, so I certainly watched them with her. I think she actually had to tape them so I could watch them because they were all after I went to bed. But I was also a huge reader, you know, loved reading pretty much everything. I still am a reader, but when I was young, you know, it was just something that I did endlessly. And so I read Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie. I, I've got a book here that I dug out not very long ago that I realised my grandparents had given me. And they wrote the date in it. And it was a pictorial history of Sherlock Holmes. Oh. And I was nine years old when they gave that to me. <laughs> so that's how long I've been looking into histories of, yeah, Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie were the two things that, that I really loved. So once I'd watched a bit, I guess I went and read them. But to be honest, I don't remember the order of when I read them, but I was just reading constantly. So I used to pick them off the shelf fairly at random like a cover, like a title, and just just read them whenever I fancied it, really. Well, let me ask this then. You touched on it a little bit, but was there anything specific that flipped the switch and made you decide, okay, I am going to write this book? Yeah, it was, I had, I was going to a conference in the United States. I can't remember quite where, I think it might have been Boston. And um, basically, I liked the look, look of the conference and I thought, oh, I can write some sort of paper to go to it, but I didn't have anything particularly in mind. And there was a panel that was about the dark side of love. And I thought, oh, I could do 20 minutes about, uh, you know, love and betrayal in Agatha Christie adaptations, because I thought there's something quite interesting there that love is often motivation for crime, but it's not always the way around that you think it might be. Anyway, so I, I gave that just one little paper. And it was really interesting that just from that, lots of people chatted to me about it in a way they'd never really spoken to me about anything I'd written before or, or, or presented before. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. This seems to have tapped into something that no one else has, or not many people were really doing at the time. And so that's what made me think I'd really love a history of the Agatha Christie screen adaptations. No one's ever really written it. There are a few, like Peter Haining did one in the early 90s and, and stuff, but they, they weren't greatly in depth. They were more sort of a guide or an overview. And I thought there's a really interesting history to be told here. So maybe I will do it. <laughs> and I just bit the bullet and one day wrote and started to write Agatha Christie on screen and found that the Agatha Christie scholarly community, very welcoming, very open. I mean, it wasn't very large at the, at the time. It's got bigger and bigger since. But there are a few key people, such as John Curran, who's written about Agatha Christie's notebooks, who were really, really helpful and seemed keen on it. And when I spoke to the Agatha Christie estate, they they were really helpful, which I 
didn't anticipate, to be honest, because I thought, you know, Agatha Christie's a multi-billion dollar industry, I guess, somehow, at least across the years, at least in millions. Are they going to be bothered and interested in my little book? But actually really supportive. So when I did Agatha Christie on screen, that did for an academic book, did, did really well in terms of people being interested in it. And I just knew that I'd found so much more that I hadn't been able to include. And I just thought, well, what I'd really love would be to one day write a collection of books where whatever Agatha Christie book or short story or film you're sitting down to watch, you could turn to it in my collection and you could read a background to it, get a sense of its context, find out anything interesting about it, find out how it was received and just, you know, the story of it really. So that's why I wrote a Poirot book and thankfully Harper Collins, who are her publishers as well, Agatha Christie's publishers, they were interested in doing that for her for Poirot's centenary. So 2020 was a hundred years since the mysterious affair at Styles, the first Poirot novel was published. So it was nice timing. And so that happened. And it again, I'm very grateful. It was well received. So I've written a Miss Marple companion, which is out in June this year, and is currently my poor editor is trying to place pictures at appropriate places. And it's all very complicated because I love there to be pictures. Sure. <laughs> um, and that's that makes it a quite a lot of work for my poor editor. But we're getting there, I think. Um, so yeah, so that's it. That's where I'm up to, really. Very good. Well, you mentioned your goal for the book, and that's been realized with me anyway, because although I've been working my way through it, and there's so much material in there, I have to confess, I'm skipping parts that relate to television mm. just because I needed to get the movie stuff taken care of. But I'd find myself stopping because also with my preparation, I've been watching some films that I hadn't seen before. So I've been doing that very thing. I, I get to a point and I start reading about a movie and say, oh, wait a minute, I should watch this one. So I stop, I watch it. <laughs> then I go back and I read what you've written about it. And so it's uh, it's enlightening without spoiling anything. Good. Oh, that's that's what I wanted. Yes. I mean, I I actually say, in, not in Agatha Christie on screen, but I say in the Poirot and the Marple book, I've actually got a little notice at the beginning that says, you don't have to read all of this and you don't have to read it in order. Like they are to be dipped in and out of. And it's absolutely fair enough that, you know, you might say or someone might say, oh, well, I'm not interested in the plays or I, I don't care about Japanese TV adaptations or whatever. And that's fine. But there are other people who will be fascinated to learn about that and maybe don't want to read about Murder on the Orient Express for the 50th time or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess before we dive in uh, into the movies in more detail, actually, probably be a good idea. I mentioned that the name is very familiar to moviegoers in general, I think, and not just mystery lovers. But as far as the person, the author herself, can you give us a little brief bio of, of her? Yeah, by all means. So she was born in 1890 in Torquay, uh, Devon. Uh, and she lived until January 1976. And I always think it's worth taking a moment to think about if you were to live through a period of history, to go from 1890 to 1976 is a pretty incredible, you know, to go through obviously two world wars, television, film, radio, all being sort of brought to the forefront um, and some of them being invented and just changes in society. If you think I've, I'm doing a, I'm going to outrageously plug my own podcast on yours, Bill. Oh, but shame I'm on doing you. A, <laughs> I'm doing a podcast with the writer Gray Robert Brown about Agatha Christie in the 1960s called The Swinging Christies ah. because she 
she still wrote about contemporary events in society. So in the 1960s, she's still writing mystery novels, just as she had in the 1920s, and they're still set in the present day. And because of adaptations, often setting things between the 30s, 40s, 50s, people don't necessarily realise that. But she was, you know, a woman writing and looking at society in the 1960s when there's youth movements and all sorts of things about fashion and sex and drugs all going on and being much more prominent in society. Yet she's also a woman who had married her first husband in 1916, you know, in the middle of the, uh, 1914, sorry, right uh, at the beginning of the First World War. And so it's a huge thing, actually, for her to have lived through society. So, so yeah, so she wrote her first book around 1916, and it was published in 1920. So her first mystery book, her first one that would be published, she had various unpublished things before this. But this was The Mysterious Affair at Styles, first Hercule Poirot novel, and it was a success. I mean, it wasn't a phenomenon. It's not like it was, you know, changed the way that people were reading stuff or that it was endlessly discussed, but it was a solid success. And she built on that through the 1920s. And then by the time she reached the 1930s, she was writing two or three books a year pretty regularly. And that was her real peak. She was writing in that decade, things like Murder on the Orient Express, uh, and then there were none, Death on the Nile, Murder at the Vicarage, loads of her big titles being published that decade. So she was um, really riding a crest of a wave there and continued to write into the 1970s. Her last book was you know, published in the 1970s. So she, she had a long old career and saw a lot of change during that time too. Yeah. Now, in terms of her, again, not having read enough of her body of work to have firsthand knowledge of this. I'm just asking as a novice, the format of a group of people gathered together for a big reveal of who the murderer among them is, is that something that she originated? I mean, I, I think these days we, we tend to associate that format of a murder mystery with her, but is that fair? Is that accurate? Yeah. So it's, it's the problem is as soon as you say something's a first, someone's going to find you an earlier one. So I like the term popularised. She certainly, with The Mysterious Affair at Styles, what happened was that it actually wasn't quite her decision to, to make it that sort of drawing room conclusion. Because what the way that she'd originally written it was, it's what we call a closed circle mystery. So where you know it isn't somebody from outside a particular group of characters because maybe it's an isolated house, maybe it's an island cut off from the mainland, or a plane or a train or whatever. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host speaking. I have brought you here to charge you with the following crimes. So you know that it's one of our characters has to be the murderer. And that was her. She absolutely did that with it being the house in the middle of the night and all this sort of stuff. But originally, when she wrote The Mysterious Affair at Styles she actually had Poirot reveal the solution at the end in a trial, and actually a trial of another character who is innocent. So the problem with that is, is that that's not how trials work. And so when her publisher and people read it, they were like, you can't have somebody, no one's going to believe that this sort of amateur, well, this private detective is going to turn up to trial and be allowed to tell everybody, oh, actually, these people did it instead of these people. You know, it's just not realistic. So... 
she was encouraged to think of a new way to write the ending, and that was to actually take it away from the established system of justice and make it a little bit less formal, which was our drawing room solution, where you get everyone together in a room in a house and revealed a solution there. So it's interesting that that wasn't instinctively the way that she was going to write it, but she was encouraged to think to make it a bit more realistic. Because yeah, I don't think you could get I don't think the judge would stand for that <laughs> to have a, a little Belgian detective come and tell everyone actually this is how it happened and give me half an hour and I'll explain it. <laughs> yeah, um Sure, Mr. Poro, go ahead. I'm going to go out and get something to eat. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. So that ends up setting the template, really, to say, well, let's not worry too much about actually having to show this person convicted and what the, but, but, but to have this person revealed as the murderer in a way that works for the reader and works for the characters, but you don't have to see them going through. I mean, sometimes we see them going through a, a bit of a court case, but, but generally not in an Agatha Christie. All right. Well, as I mentioned, it didn't take long for her works to begin being filmed, but it was interesting what you indicated in your book that part of what influenced the earliest adaptations was something called the Cinematograph Films Act of 1927. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So this was actually really influential in British cinema because in the 1920s, there was a concern that I think, especially in the days of silent film, where language obviously was not the barrier that it would become later. But there were an awful lot of films being shown in Britain that weren't British. And that actually, if you were a, a cinema, there was really no reason for you to particularly support the British film industry because you might get cheaper films from America in particular, but also France and Germany and all sorts of places. And this was posing a problem for the British film industry. So this act forced studios to distribute and, and cinemas to show is quite complicated. But basically, it meant that you had to show or make a certain number of British films. So uh, you had to have a certain number of films being made that had their origins in British stories in particular. That was one of those sort of regulations. But there are various ways that you could get around it. And the outcome of this was that British film studios or and distributors would make what became known as the quota quickies. <laughs> so basically they had a quota saying you had to have a certain number of British films being distributed. And so they would make cheap, efficient, not terribly exciting often films that, that satisfied this criteria. And so because Agatha Christie is a British author, she was one of the authors who was identified as a good person you could go to and maybe pick one or two of her stories and make them into films so that you could say, look, we're making films based on British stories and they wouldn't have a lot of money pumped into them and they generally wouldn't have sort of big stars or anything. But yeah, so that's how the first real film, um, The Passing of Mr. Quinn, sort of came about, which is vaguely based on an Agatha Christie short story, although hugely changed. Um, unfortunately, that one doesn't survive, but we've got a few photos and they actually published a novel that was um, of the script. Uh, they adapted it into a short novel, which gives us a pretty good idea of how the story went. And there are some synopses from the trade press as well. And not very Agatha Christie, but it satisfied the criteria because you could say, hey, based on an Agatha Christie story. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's and, how it really kicked off. Yeah, and that was one of a couple of silence that were made of her works. 
Yes, so there only seem to have been two. So that one and it was a German production of The Secret Adversary, which is a sort of thriller mystery. It's got Tommy and Tuppence, which are young adventurers in one of Christie's early novels. And what we got is a film that really works as a silent movie because there's lots of stunts in it, lots of action. You know, there's like a sinking of a ship and there's people being rescued and there's lots of subterfuge and stuff. I've got to say, I've seen it several times and I can never quite follow it. And I've read the book, but it doesn't really matter. You get swept along by it and it's all great sort of, you know, excitement. Because we think of Agatha Christie now very much as, you know, writing whodunits and these sort of country house type mysteries. But especially in the 1920s, she wrote a really wide variety of stories. So she wrote romances, she wrote thrillers, you know, including spy thrillers, supernatural stories. There was a really much bigger sort of range of, of stuff that she wrote in the 1920s. And she still did that all through her career, but it later became from the 30s on that her main novels tended to be whodunits. But in the 20s in particular, there was a bit more of a, of a variety. And then when the talkies came along, which, of course, I'm sure just provided a lot more opportunity for the kind of characterization, dialogue, mm. uh, intricacies, nuances that her stories lend themselves to, uh, to be captured on film as opposed to a silent where you just can't get all of that flavor yeah. into it. You but, can't tell a complex whodunit in a silent movie because there's so much of it that needs explanation through dialogue. That's why people who play Poirot and Miss Marple, almost all of them say the same thing, which is that they dreaded filming the last scene of the movie or the TV episode because it always required them to stand in front of a lot of actors and talk for about 10 minutes <laughs> about how it all works. And obviously in a silent movie, uh, that's quite difficult to get across, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, very much so. And But the first talkies, in fact, were they were Poirot. There was a, a trilogy mm. of them. Yes. Yeah, so these were, again, starting really as quota quickies. So two in 1931 and then one in 1934. The first two were Black Coffee and Alibi. And these two movies were based on plays, uh, one of which was an original Agatha Christie play, and one was adapted from The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. So they're sort of already existed in a form that could be translated to the screen fairly straightforwardly. And then those two don't survive, unfortunately. But the third one, which is based on Lord Edgware Dies, which at that point was only a novel, that one does survive. And that gives us a sense. It's Austin Trevor, who was quite a young man, really, to be playing Poirot. And he doesn't have a moustache. And he's French rather than Belgian, which Poirot would be absolutely horrified by. Don't forgive me for butting him. But I've had a bet with my daughter here that your Hercules porridge, the famous French sleuth. Not quite. I'm Hercule Poirot, the famous Belgian sleuth. Although in those stage ones, one of them refers to him as French as well. So that seems to be Poirot off the page in speak French. And certainly the one that survives, Lord Edgware dies. It's sort of fine, but it's quite static. It's quite talky, but it serves a function in terms of telling the story quite efficiently in only just over an hour. But it hasn't got lots of atmosphere. It's not particularly thrilling, but it's, I guess, an indication of that the, her, her stories could work for these talky pictures. And it's funny because Austin Trevor's pretty much forgotten now. Fair enough, you know, it's a long time ago. But in the 1950s, when BBC Radio did some Poirots, he 
play Poirot again in one or two productions. So he's obviously remembered even 25 odd years later, which is interesting. And in the 60s, there was a very loose adaptation of the ABC murders. And he had a cameo in that as a butler, I seem to recall, or an assistant. You know, he was remembered for a little while, but now is pretty much forgotten. Yeah, I actually watched Lord Edgeware Dies recently uh, in the lead up to the, it's available on YouTube. It's got a time code up on the screen. Yeah. So you, you know, if, if you're not distracted by that, but a couple of things stood out in that one. Uh, first of all, it starts out and the opening scene is at a party and there's mm. music playing. And for one thing, the sound wasn't great. It was still no. in an era where uh, there wasn't a lot of sophistication to the sound quality. And it's amplified by the fact that you've got this music playing. Then, of course, you've got Austin Trevor doing the dialect. And as it is, okay, I'm you know American. So although I'm pretty good at handling dialects, there's still... It's unfamiliar enough that when you add the music and the audio quality, I could not wait for them to get away from that party scene where I could <laughs> understand what the heck anybody was saying. I was picking up very little of the dialogue. Oh, I spotted you, Monsieur Poirot. Uh, the good sir. How are you? Not so bad, considering. And how's Captain Hastings? Oh, uh, top thanks. And then there's a part in the party where Lady Edgeware says to Poirot, uh, may I speak with you privately? I'm going, yes, please go, go in another room. I, I'm begging you go somewhere else. No, they go over to a corner and, and talk. So you still got the music going, but that was one of the things on that one. The other thing that I noticed, and again, not having read the novels, I, I gather that Captain Hastings is uh, a recurring character. He is. Yeah. He actually narrates a lot of the early novels so he's someone who is um yeah a, a close confidant of Poirot yes but not like he's not like this one <laughs> right this very one, much yeah he's the, basically a boob yes yeah and, and treated as such by mm. Poirot what brings you to Sears I'll tell you that in a word murder murder yes Lord Edgeware was killed in his house last night stabbed in the neck by his wife by his wife yes how do you know that it was his wife who killed him she was recognized Recognized? Yes. Not much concealment about it either. Lady Edgeware drove up in a taxi. A taxi? Hastings, I beg of you, do not repeat everything that the good chap says. It creates the irritation. And you know who you reminded me of? Now, I, I think I read in your book uh, there was some comparison to Nigel Bruce's Watson, but uh, he goes beyond that. Who he really reminded me of more was if you've seen the Charlie Chan film, The Black Camel. Oh, I haven't. He no. has a Japanese assistant named Kashimo that is just goofy mm. and eager and goofy. And that really is who the Captain Hastings in Lord Edgeware Dies reminded me of more than anything else. Yeah. That, one of the reviews calls him the usual silly ass assistant, I seem to remember, which is a really good indication that this was a known cliche right that this was the sort of expectation but it's a real shame because it sort of makes you think why is Poirot hanging around with this guy <laughs> you know it makes him feel a bit you know stupid really in a way but yeah not not funny that's the problem isn't it it's if you're going to do that at least it should actually want to make you laugh but it's yeah. just a bit annoying really yeah so then after that Poirot trilogy then it's just three years or so before Love from a Stranger 
Yeah, which with is future those... Sherlock Holmes, Basil Rathbone. Yeah, we're back in in Holmes. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. So this is um, adapted from Philomel Cottage. is a short story that Agatha Christie wrote, which is about a woman who's wealthy and marries a man who may or may not be out to get her money. And it's sort of, you know, if he is, is he going to try and kill her? And that was that's a very good short story, but it was made into a stage play. She actually wrote her own version of it, which wasn't produced. And then that was adapted by Frank Vosper, who uh, made it into a very successful stage play. It's very much in the gaslight mould. I don't think I make comparisons in the book, but it's not a very original or sophisticated argument to say it's basically gaslight. It's very, very similar. But the whole Bluebeard thing about, you know, a woman being imperiled and that maybe her husband or whoever is out to kill her for some reason. Interested in criminology? Hmm? Oh yes, I am. You'll find some remarkable cases in that book. I've made quite a study of crime myself. Happen to have this book in my own library, just published. Picked it up only the other day. Really, did you? What do you think of the Fletcher case? Extraordinary, wasn't it? Three women. Must have been pretty relentless. Or mad. He could have been mad, you know. Oh, undoubtedly, he was mad. Then how do you account for his brilliance? Escaping the law. Turning up here, there, everywhere. Hello, where's Fletcher's photograph? Photograph? So it's a bit of a funny movie, really, because I watch it and I'm never quite sure what the audience is supposed to make of it whether you're supposed to think it's a mystery because you know if he's not trying to kill her there's nowhere for the story to go really but it never really makes it into that much of a mystery did you get the chance to see this one Bill? I did and it's funny because this is one of those instances where I started reading about it and as I'm reading I'm thinking just from your initial description of it okay I'm thinking Hitchcock's suspicion and then then you know moments later I read you know you make the comparison to suspicion and i thought it was interesting it and maybe this is another technique of hers is that there's a, an evolution during the film of it being one type of story and transforming into another because by the end of it i'm thinking of things like gaslight and also even more contemporary thrillers like wait until dark mm, mm. yeah i agree it's it's interesting because it, for me it's obviously it was it was actually a very successful film or in in its own uh, right it wasn't like um you know a blockbuster but it did well and and obviously the um play had done very very well but for me it's it's a good example of that sometimes Agatha Christie is quite difficult to adapt especially her ones that are less obviously a who done it she wrote a book called Endless Night in the 60s which was made into a fairly cheap British film in the early 70s. But, but that's a, quite a similar story where it's sort of there's a young couple who get together and, and married and she's very rich and terrible things, you know, seem to be happening. There's a curse that seems to happen. But you're sort of watching it as a film going, well, what is this film? <laughs> you know, because is, is it supposed to be a mystery? Is it supposed to be a thriller? And it's a great movie in lots of ways, but it's got that problem of the audience is inevitably watching it going, what's this all about? And that's quite difficult to do on, on screen, I think, to to not give too much away early on, but also want to make sure that the audience is reassured that something is going to happen here, but you don't necessarily know what. And and this is another example of that, is where you're sort of watching it going, well, this can't just be a movie about two people going and living in the country in a nice cottage. Surely this has got to go somewhere. And so I think it's quite tough 
to do that. Yeah. And well, mentioned suspicion. And then uh, again, I made the reference to wait until dark. I also think of the other Frederick Knott play, Dial in for Murder, which was uh, yeah. adapted uh, by Hitchcock. And that got me thinking, gosh, what if Hitchcock had ever directed a, an Agatha Christie story? What would that have been like? And you indicated in the book, there were a couple of near misses on that count. Yes, it's interesting. It would be lovely to, to think how, how that would have developed. When Dial in for Murder was playing on the London stage, obviously pre the film, press cuttings about it and Witness for the Prosecution were sent to Alfred Hitchcock to basically say, these might be your sort of thing. Do you want to investigate either of these for I making mean, it a film? Um, and he went for Dial M for Murder, which is interesting, which I don't think, I mean, I am biased, but I don't think it's a patron Witness for Prosecution in terms of story, but I also think it's a much more Hitchcockian one than Witness for Prosecution. So I think he probably jumped the right way for him. There's also a short story called Accident, which they tried to get for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And obviously we don't know whether that would have actually been, because he did direct some of those, but lots of them he didn't. So we don't know whether that would have been one that he actually directed or not. But that didn't happen because it was at the wrong time. It was when they were doing this big deal with MGM that tied up most Agatha Christie stories. So yeah, a couple of near misses. It's, it's an interesting what if. And actually, I guess I'm anticipating your point here, Bill, but this absolutely love from a stranger is one of the ones that you could see it being a Hitchcock one because of things like suspicion. Sure. And that one was remade. What was it, mm. a decade later or something like that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's one of those ones that's weirdly, it's a bit difficult, more difficult to find the remake. There are actually loads of versions. I would say that Love from a Stranger is probably the Agatha Christie story that has been filmed the most times <laughs> because obviously those couple on film, but it was, it was used for television for years, not just in the UK, in America, in Europe, lots of places, because it's actually a pretty good hour-long story if you're going to make it for TV. You can do it in 60 minutes very nicely. Small cast, only two or three sets, very straightforward. You've got a good thriller on your hands. Uh, so yeah, funnily enough, a, a story that very rarely has Agatha Christie's name attached to it ends up being one of the ones that certainly in the early decades is definitely the one that was filmed the most most times by now perhaps maybe not quite but certainly up to the 1960s or so was the one that was seen most often on film and tv screens and then of course we jumped ahead to the to that remake which i guess was 47 but prior to that in 45 that's when we get one of the really big agatha christie films uh, stories and remade a number of times itself and that's and then there were none mm, yeah so and then there were none comes around every sort of couple of decades. <laughs> so René Clair makes this first version in 1945. So Agatha Christie had written the novel in, or published the novel in 1939 and a couple of years later wrote it as a play. And the play has, and I don't want to, even for And Then There Were None, I don't want to ruin the ending, but I will warn, I'm just going to give a slight sense of what the ending might be like in terms of tone, which is that the book is very downbeat as an ending. I mean, there's always fairly downbeat. A lot of people die in it. But yeah, got a very downbeat ending, the book. But the play and then the films have a glimmer of hope at the end, should we say. So there is a bit more positivity, even though lots of people are dead come the end. You'd say the general was behaving very strangely. Like a man out of his mind. In other words, a lunatic. Righto, the old boy's balmy. 
Whom the gods destroy, they first make mad. Well, aren't we looking for a lunatic? So there's already a shift there in terms of the way that audiences might perceive things differently on stage or on screen compared to if you're reading a novel, that there are different expectations. There's also the practicalities of how you're going to tell the ending of this story if you make it very downbeat. Um, I say I'm not, not wanting to give away the specifics of the ending, but it, you want there to be a way that it can be explained more clearly. And it has been suggested that part of this was because of the war, that if you're going to see a play during the Second World War, perhaps you might want it to not be so downbeat at the end. But I don't think that's the only reason. Uh, I think it is a lot of it's just because of what an audience going for, for an evening at the theatre is, is going to want, which then translates into cinema screen. So the important thing for this film, more than anything else, which is not one of my favourites, I have to say that it's fine, it works, but it's that it actually was critically well received and that it was a sign that Agatha Christie stories were being taken seriously as potential basis for film adaptation, which up to this point, you know, we've seen these quota quickies and these sort of slightly shocky films. But now, actually, you could make high quality movies from her stories. This this was proof of that. I know the trend tended to be this as it was remade as Ten Little Indians, or, or in some cases, Ten Little Indians was the US title, uh, as opposed to in the UK. But it became known as it would be an all kind of an all star cast type thing. And mm. I think that was that was true of and then there were none the, the 1945 Renee Claire version, was it not? Yes. Yes. So, so you would often get this, but you would they would be um cast members who you would really recognize from other movies. It tend to be the case that the name of the production, and then there were none or, or whatever they were going for at any particular time, would be the big star attraction. But they'd be supported by who I often think of as very solid character actors who would give it some gravitas, right? So there weren't unknown actors. Uh, there were people who you could absolutely associate with high quality productions. So yes, this did often tend to be the case. By the time we get into the 60s, We've got uh, Hugh O'Brien, who was known for television mostly, but was a bit of an attraction. But having people in that cast who are all sorts of Fabian, who was a sort of a singer as much as anything else, all the way through to... Gert Frobo was in that, wasn't he? Or am I thinking of a different one? That might be the... I think it's Shirley Eaton. Shirley Eaton, that's the name I was absolutely thinking of. Yeah, the nineteen. Yeah, it's a 1974 one that's in colour. It's got Gert Frober in it. And oh, uh, right. that's the Oliver Reed and Richard Attenborough one. Right. Uh, but yeah, yeah, so the 1960s one, 1965, has got people like Shirley Eaton, obviously fresh from James Bond. Hugh O'Brien, mostly known from television, but a bit of a star himself. Fabian, a, a singer. Dahlia Lavi was an actor as well as she was a, a model. Uh, so, so people who are recognisable, but usually not eclipsing... Agatha Christie, by this point, was very much the star name. Now, the first motion picture with a whodunit break. 60 seconds for you to match wits with the world's greatest mystery writer and try to guess who is determined to murder 10 people. One by one by one by one. That script for the 1965 one gets dusted off just nine years later. A few little changes, a, a little bit more of a sex scene, which had only been really hinted to in the 60s one, and we get another version of it. Agatha Christie has brought ten human beings to one little island to die. 
one by one until there are none. And this time it's Richard Attenborough and Oliver Reed, you know, really big names. It's funny that my dad, who was not a film watcher at all, but um, he once said to me one day, oh, yes, I remember seeing an actress once and it had Charles Aznavour in it. <laughs> it's just like, who plays the piano and is, again, is not really known as an actor, but, but a musician. And so you would often see these films and go, oh, I know that person, They're not necessarily a Hollywood A-lister, but recognisable faces and names and stuff. So, yes, I guess setting that trend that then happens with Murder on the Orient Express as well, the, the same year in 74. And another one that, and then there were none slash 10 little Indians brings to mind going to television here. My all-time favorite TV series is the Avengers. Fantastic. That's what I love to hear. And there was an episode called the superlative seven Mm -hmm. that essentially is. And then there were none. And I guess you could make the argument. It had a little bit of the all-star cast element to it. Charlotte Rampling is in it. Mm -hmm. And I think Brian blessed as well. He is, yes. Yes, I watched it again not very long ago, actually, because I'm a huge Avengers fan as well, and I fancied re-watching it not very long ago. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. And it's one of many, I mean, it's one of the best ones that does it, but it's one of many, many (laughs) TV shows that has done it, and then there were none episodes at some point. I mean, Family Guy did it, Doctor Who did it, just about every ITC series seems to have done something like that, or the film series seems to have done it at some point, especially once you get through a lot of episodes, you need to find something to do. Uh, Even comedy series, you know, often seem to do it. I think there's a Golden Girls episode even that might be, it's all sorts of things that I've seen at some point. They're clearly playing on this idea of we're in a, a house and we're going to be picked off one by one or something's going to happen. What I gonna I am gonna slightly ruin Superlative Seven for anyone who hasn't seen it. So block your ears for 30 seconds if you're not gonna see it. But it does do something that Agatha Christie and, and detective writers of, of her era went against the rules that they agreed to, which is we have twins, Bill, don't we, at the end, Mm -hmm. which is one of the cardinal sins of detective fiction. She did actually do it once or twice, but only in short stories where it was a little bit of fun. And when she did have twins in novels, it was never just like, ha-ha, you know, as a surprise reveal at the end that there is a secret twin. But it still works, doesn't it? Especially in that. I love that episode. Well, yeah, and there's an ongoing clue to that fact but it's you don't necessarily or at least you're not supposed to realize it until the end that the clue has been there right in front of you the entire time yes yeah no that's a really good and really atmospheric that episode as well like all the best and then there were nuns have to be yeah then the next one that and i just watched this one for the first time i i thought maybe i had seen a stage production of it years ago but i at this point i'm just really not sure that i did it may just be that the movie was so good that it it overshadowed anything I might have potentially remembered from that. And that is Billy Wilder's Witness for the Prosecution. Guilty or not guilty? The answer to that question is the end of most mystery stories. But in Witness for the Prosecution, it is only the beginning of a series of climaxes that I defy you to guess. You'll talk about this picture all right, but you'll never tell the ending to your friends because you won't want to spoil their excitement and their fun. Yeah, just just a phenomenally good movie. It does, for me, it does what a good adaptation should do, which is to preserve the brilliance of the original text and add something to it. So all of the comedy, or most of the comedy in it, is a Billy Wilder you know, invention. Lots of the background character stuff is Billy Wilder, and yet he's keeping 
the basics of the characterization, the the plotting of it, the structure of it is as Agatha Christie presented in her play version. So she originally wrote it as a short story many decades earlier uh, in the 1920s, which had the very basics of the story and part of the twist, one of the twists. I'm not going to reveal the twists here because it's such a good movie. Everyone should go and watch it and enjoy it themselves. And then when she wrote it as a play, she added a twist or two to it as well to, you know, make it, I guess, a little bit more substantial. And that is, for me, her stage masterpiece. It's, It's her best play by a mile for me. And then Billy Wilder takes that brilliant play and adds stuff like all of the Sir Wilfred stuff, you know, the barrister in it, all of this. Yeah, uh, Charles Lawton's uh, performance Charles... was just great. I shall have a very serious talk with Dr. Harrison. It was a mistake to let you come back here. I shall take you directly to a rest home or resort, someplace quiet, far off, like Bermuda. Shut up. You just want to see me in those nasty shorts. He was so entertaining in that, like a humorous take on Scrooge. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And yet, not silly. He's someone who can be funny, and yet you could take him seriously as well. You really believe that he is the person for this case, right? That that he really is somebody who you want to believe is going to get to the truth of this. Yeah, he's he's fantastic with Elsa Lanchester as well, of course, his wife, and and being such a good double act there. And Marlena Dietrich just being phenomenal in a way that, is very difficult to explain until you've seen the movie, but just giving everything that you really want that part to be able to have. For me, actually, that movie, my mum had, you know, recorded off television and we had on VHS. And that might be the Agatha Christie thing that moved me from liking Agatha Christie to being a, a fan, you know, because it just, I felt was so phenomenal, even though when I was watching it, it was a, you know, 35, 40-year-old black and white movie. That didn't matter. I was hooked from the very beginning because you want to know what the truth is. So you want to know what the actual reveal is. And dare I say that if you think about it too much, it's actually fairly straightforward. You can actually work out what's going on quite easily. But the amazing thing about the movie is is it distracts you from that. It makes Mm -hmm. you look in different directions and it's only at the end that you think, huh, there's actually only one way this story could really have gone. And now I realise it. It's so good. I'm really pleased that you enjoyed it, Bill, because there's that terrible thing about people watching movies that you love and they come back and say, oh, I wasn't so keen. You take a bit personally. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I immediately turned around and got Debbie, my wife, to watch it. It's not the kind of movie she would normally take a proactive interest in, but I told her, I, I think you'll like it. Let's, let's start it and uh, see what you think. And yeah, it drew her in and she liked it. It's so, oh, so good to hear. Yeah. So then we go from that to, and this is where I have nothing to work with. I have not seen any Miss Marple. I was hoping to catch at least one of the Margaret Rutherford films, but I have not managed to do so. The indomitable Miss Marple. The inimitable Agatha Christie. An incomparable combination that signposts murder. I assure you, Miss Marple, that a woman cannot be murdered on a busy train a few minutes before a station without our finding out about it. I'm quite sure you mean well, Inspector. But if you imagine that I am going to sit back and let everybody regard me as a dotty old maid, you are very much mistaken. And I gather those are not really highly favored uh, among Agatha Christie fans. So it's this thing that they are fun films in their own right. 
but as Agatha Christie adaptations, especially after the first one, they diverge. So basically, there are four main Margaret Rutherford and Miss Marple movies. So there was this big deal that Agatha Christie made in 1960 with MGM that gave them pretty much free reign to make adaptations of her work. And Margaret Rutherford played Miss Marple in four of these movies in a way that really was completely unlike the Miss Marple of the novels. So Miss Marple of the novels, she's sort of reserved. She's a quiet observer. She's not much of a sort of go-getter. She's just sort of watching, really, and, and deducing. And she has great insight into human nature. That's how she solves crimes. Margaret Rutherford's Miss Marple is hugely entertaining because she absolutely is a go-getter. She's going to, she is boisterous. She is drawing attention to herself. She's very active in a way that Miss Marple tends to be very passive because she's, say, watching and just taking stuff in. She's funny. So there is, I, I think that the best indication of the difference between the Miss Marple as written and Miss Marple that Margaret Rutherford does is that whilst Miss Marple in the books and, and short stories will just sort of ask people information and deduce it and sort of sit, literally sometimes sit in the corner of the room and watch. There's one sequence in one of the Miss Marple movies where Margaret Rutherford does the twist at a party and mm. then pretends to have a heart attack so that she can, you know, the killer can come and try to finish her off, basically, thinking Miss Marple's worked out the truth. There is no way that Agatha Christie's Miss Marple is doing the twist at a party, right? That That's just not her. But Margaret Rutherford's Miss Marple, she'll pretend to be a track layer on the on the trains, you know, on the railways to get some more information. She'll, she'll be lifted over walls and she'll go and play golf and she'll do whatever she needs to do. At one point, she dresses up like she's an admiral to investigate crimes on a ship and all sorts of things go on. Very entertaining, but not the Miss Marple that had been written. Agatha Christie liked her as an actor and she didn't mind the first one too much because that was fairly close to the novel. But as they went through... The second and third films were based on Poirot novels rather than... Was the first one Murder Most Foul? Am I remembering that? No, the first one's um, Murder, She Said, which is based on 450 from Paddington. Then it's Murder at the Gallop, which is based on a Poirot novel after the funeral. Then it's Murder Most Foul, which is based on another Poirot novel. And then the last of them is Murder Ahoy, which isn't based on anything. (laughs) By that point, Agatha Christie and her sort of family at that time didn't really realize that when they said please stop making all of these changes to the novels we can't bear it they thought the result of that was going to be them not making them any changes to the novels unfortunately the result was they said okay that's all right we'll make, make our own stories mm. <laughs> and they hadn't really realized that so there was a lot of upset about that so murder ahoy is, is not based on a next christie story at all and that really was the end of the deal because nobody particularly wanted to renew it because Agatha Christie was very upset and MGM were annoyed because they couldn't do what they wanted to do with it. So the the deal ended up lapsing a couple of years later. And then Margaret Rutherford's Miss Marple made cameo, apparently, in mm. the Poirot film with Tony Randall, you know, The Alphabet Murders. Yeah, so 1965, yeah, this was after she'd done her four main movies. They were going to do The Body in the Library. That was going to be the next one, but I think they just decided it was too much hassle, really. MGM presents me as... As Hercule Poirot, the Belgian sleuth. Over. But yeah, so Tony Randall played Poirot in The Alphabet Murders, which is 
vaguely based on the ABC Murders novel. But this was a bit of an emergency situation because originally the script for it was a sex comedy. It was supposed to be very funny and Poirot involved in all sorts of innuendo. And it was going to be Zero Mostel, you know, from the producers and stuff, had co-written this script and was going to star in it. And when the script came through, Agatha Christie was horrified, as was everybody else. And so this was a bit of an emergency rewrite to bring Tony Randall in to play Poirot. And actually, Poirot is a fairly straightforward character in that movie. He does have moments of comedy. It's still a bit of a silly film. I actually have a letter from Tony Randall about that. Oh, do you? Interesting. Yeah, what did he say? I had, well, I had uh, a number of years ago, and I've talked about this on previous episodes, worked on what I anticipated would be a book, uh, an encyclopedia of movie series. And of course, the Hercule Poirot films were going to be in there. And I wrote to Tony Randall, who is from my hometown, Tulsa, originally. And I just basically asked him, approaching this film, because Previously, the only, at least English language, Poirot films had been the three Austin Trevor. And I said, did you see any of those? Did, that, did those inform your performance in any way? He said he had not seen them. Uh, he, he complimented the makeup man. I think it was uh, William Tuttle. And also there was some particular shot of Poirot looking into a mirror that he thought was just a really great shot and was crediting the director or maybe the cameraman. I don't remember. I have to dig out that letter. I'll have to send that to you. That would be wonderful. I know which shot he's talking about there. There's a really good shot where he's having a conversation and the mirror is placed over the bottom half of his face. So that it means that the person he's speaking to, you can see their lips, but sort of overlaid on Poro's face, if you see what I mean. So hmm. when they're speaking, you can see half of their face, but it's the other person's lips. And yes, that must have been great. Oh, that's wonderful. How how great. I mean, he's fine in the movie, but... I. At the time when he was interviewed, I think the only thing he really said was how cold Britain was. I think they were filming in January. <laughs> so that was his main feeling about it, was that it was a very cold shoot. Uh, well, getting back to Miss Marple just for a moment, would you say that Agatha Christie's rendering of her in the novels or stories, did that maybe mirror her own personality? I think by the time you get to the 1960s, much more so, because she's... Agatha Christie's in her 70s by this point. But she always denied it. Christie said that she was much more like Ariadne Oliver, who's a, a mystery writer character who pops up in several novels, most of them Hercule Poirot ones. But actually, the first time we meet Miss Marple, Christie's only in her 30s. So of course, there's not going to be a huge amount of overlap. But by the time we see her in the 1960s, Miss Marple has not aged that much. But Agatha Christie obviously has. And actually, some of Agatha Christie's memories start to become Miss Marple's memories. Like there's a whole section in one of the novels called A Bertram's Hotel about memories of what Miss Marple did when she was young. And actually, they're almost verbatim in Agatha Christie's autobiography. So it's interesting that the older Christie gets, the more that perhaps those characters seem to merge. Although she still denied it, even in the early 1970s, she still said no. But I think there's definitely a starts to be a bit more of an overlap the older she gets. Okay. I want to jump forward a bit just for a moment. And that is to The Mirror Cracked, mm. which was another all-star mystery when brought to the screen. And Angela Lansbury plays Miss Marple in that one. Murder is a very dangerous business. If one gets mixed up in it, one must be prepared for the consequences. Yeah, I adore 
Angela Lansbury. Absolutely a massive fan. I've got a signed photo right here. I went to see her when she was in Bly's Spirit in the West End. And actually, I went to see her, just, this has got nothing to do with anything, but many years ago, possibly at that conference where I gave the talk, my first Ex Christie talk, but she was appearing in The Best Man on Broadway. And I made a special diversion to go and see her because I thought it might have been the only chance I'd ever get to see Angela Lansbury on stage. So I'm basically prefacing by saying I love Angela Lansbury. I think she's brilliant. Even she didn't think that she quite cracked Miss Marple in The Mirror Cracked, so to speak. And I think she's given a real disservice by some really bad makeup and wig. Like she's made to look much older than she is. And I think that she was not very well led in terms of her character. So basically, lots of things she wanted to do with the characters, she was told, well, no, you can't do that because it's not very Miss Marple. So things like smoking after dinner is not really a Miss Marple thing, but Angela Lansbury wanted to do it as a sign that Miss Marple was thinking because you've got to have something that isn't, you know, putting your hand on your, your, on your chin going, hmm. Um, and so that all makes sense, but also it's not terribly Miss Marple. Scratching her head probably wouldn't have been the right image either. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so she wanted to be a bit more subtle with it. But the mirror crack's also a funny one because Miss Marple's injured in it. So she's deliberately kept away. And actually, the, you know, the big star, and no disservice, you know, not, not being critical of Angela Lansbury here, but of course it's Elizabeth Taylor is in the mirror cracked and actually they never meet like they don't have dialogue or not there's a scene where they're sort of there in the same scene of the fate but they never speak to each other which seems such a a mistake to pick a book that you're going to have a couple of big stars who never really get that moment together but it's got you know tony curtis and rock hudson and kim novak it's directed by guy hamilton you know who frankly seems to have popped the camera down and then gone for a break Mm -hmm. um it's the most undynamic film. And I read at the time, or not at the time, I read in my research from from reports of the time how proud they were that it came in sort of just under schedule, I think, and just under budget. And I'm just like, oh, if you're a movie director who's done that with your movie, I think that might be a sign that you weren't very excited by the project if it's coming in under budget and under time. <laughs> like you just wanted to get it done. What I was wondering was, did, did, do you think that led to Murder, She Wrote? Oh, it did. Yeah, it did. Definitely. So these Christie movies, including the, we'll talk to them about them in a moment, like The Death on the Nile and Merge on the Orient Express in the 70s, and Mirror Cracked were shown on television and did well. And Helen Hayes did a TV movie version. The first one was The Caribbean Mystery. She played Miss Marple, and that did really well. And basically, after that movie went out, they um, called up the Agatha Christie estate and said, hey, we'll have a Miss Marple series. Thank you very much. And Agatha Christie estate said, well, there aren't enough because there's actually only 12 Miss Marple novels and 20 short stories. And at that time, they absolutely were not allowing new stories featuring any of the detectives. And that's not enough network TV. Yeah, so they went away and said, okay, well, let's try and find something else. And that is, you know, that isn't hearsay. That's actually in got it on my shelf here somewhere but one of the inventors peter fisher um wrote a book and talked about this whole scenario that basically they said okay well let's try and have a movie that's got a bit of agatha christie a bit of miss marple and a bit of our own detective and bringing um them all together and that's how murder she wrote came about yeah 
Well, okay. So then, and we now we jumped forward. Let's jump back a little bit. Uh, so Poirot makes his return to the screen in a big way with Murder on the Orient Express with Albert Finney in the role. This is no ordinary train. This is the legendary Orient Express, witness to many strange adventures and foreign intrigues. From Istanbul to Calais. This is no ordinary passenger. Monsieur Poirot is a detective. This is the world's most celebrated crime fighter. I take a professional interest in crime. Agatha Christie's brilliant Belgian detective. Oh, Belgians? I always thought you were French. Albert Finney is Detective Hercule Poirot. This is no ordinary mystery. Touch nothing. This is Agatha Christie's most perfect crime. Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, so this is the beginning of the prestige adaptations. So you were saying quite rightly about, and then there were none often having cast members who were really recognisable, but this is sort of the beginning of them all being really stars. And so you've got your likes of your Sean Connery and everyone coming in uh, who, who you would expect to be leading a movie. And actually part of the reason for this was that they were all the Agatha Christie people, you know, the estate, or not the estate at this point, but the family and Agatha Christie herself were quite concerned that they didn't actually necessarily want Poirot to be too much of the star, that they were worried that how would he come across on screen? And so they were quite happy for there to be a really big cast of names who would perhaps take a little bit of the light off him and work in their own rights. So this is really the beginning of Agatha Christie adaptations being taken very seriously, just like if you were adapting, say, a Dickens novel, and given this this all-star cast, which we then see for, for several years after this point as well. Yeah, in the person of Peter Ustinov as Poirot, both on the big screen and on television, and then apparently back to the big screen. Yeah, absolutely. Murder. <laughs> now, join the most brilliant detective of all time. Hercule Poirot. On a mysterious journey down the Nile to the great wonders of the world, where the biggest wonder of them all is who done it. I feel the presence of evil all about me. Agatha Christie's Death on the Nile. Starring Peter Ustinov. With me, it's the exercise of the little gray cells. And nine star suspects. Yeah, so, so Death on the Nile is his first one because Finney wasn't terribly interested in coming back. Uh, and then you've got, yeah, Angela Lansbury, Betty Davis, all sorts of people, you know, co-starring Death on the Nile and then onwards, Evil Under the Sun. And yeah, he goes to TV following those Helen Hayes movies, which are set in the present day, or they're set in the 1980s, which is interesting mm. because of budgets as much as anything. And then he does one final hurrah, going back and doing Appointment with Death, which is a a bit of a funny one. We could have a whole episode dedicated to that. We won't, don't worry. Well, I um, just watched that one. And the thing that bothered me about that one was it's it's as if, I'm sorry, the metaphor that comes to mind is somebody walking out of the bathroom with toilet paper stuck to their shoe. It's like it's dragged a 70s TV score yeah. as the music to that film. And it just really cheapens whatever effect it otherwise might have had. It's a cheap feeling movie. I mean, it is because it's, it's a canon one. I seem to recall. Yeah, I believe so. so. 
all of those canon movies, you know, that were really a big headline thing. So either a star or a vehicle or something that it was already known. So in this case, it's, you know, Agatha Christie uh, and, and Peter Ustinov as Poirot. And it sort of didn't matter beyond that. I mean, it's Michael Winner, who's not a a renowned director of quality, certainly by this point. A very unhappy shoot as well, mm. apparently. But yes, not not a great ending. And of course, at that point, it's coming out at the same time that David Suchet is making his first TV appearance as Poirot. So Ustinov mm. starting to feel old hat by this point, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I love Peter Ustinov, but yeah, I don't think it's his best work no. by any means. But now, so now we get, I mean, present day, we've got a, essentially a Poirot revival with Kenneth Branagh. I do not approve of murder, my friend. Every day we meet people the world could do better without, yet we do not kill them. We must be better than the beasts. So let us find this killer. So what are your thoughts on that? I think that they are made for for audiences that perhaps are never going to watch those 70s movies. And quite right, too. You wouldn't want them to just be remakes. For me, because of the type of fan I am, I'm going to be much more interested in certainly the Houston of Death on the Nile, I think is great. I don't think that the Finney Murder on the Orient Express, I, I actually have a few issues with, but but it's still a great movie and I'm happy to see new versions of it. What they do differently is that because Branagh is obviously director as well as star, like Poirot's the star as well, whereas actually he's not always in adaptations or even in the original novels. And he's foregrounded in this way, the character's foregrounded in a way that means that his character is much more important to the movies than perhaps other adaptations have been, where the mystery tends to be the star. I'm not sure that's always the case in these movies, but you know, it's a different take on it. For me, I'm I you know I I love the seventies Death on the Nile in particular. You're not going to better that for me, but oh. I'm always happy to see new Agatha Christie stuff. And and if you no, know, I don't like it or other people don't like it, then there will be another one along <laughs> in another ten years. It's the way that it works. I, I love that that there are new ways to approach these novels. Yeah, well, and aside from the direct Agatha Christie works, you you get the influence in things. I mean, back in the seventies, there was The Last of Sheila. Uh, yes. which definitely had uh, kind of that flavor. More recently, you got the two films, and I understand there's a third, you Knives Out, Glass Onion, starring Daniel Craig. Yes. And so that's that seems like, I mean, yeah. some might go so far as to say a ripoff, but they're, I think they're well-done films, so I think they can stand on their own to the side of Brenna's Poirot films, for instance. Yeah, I think I think that, you know, Ryan Johnson's very honest about the fact that of course Agatha Christie is a huge, huge influence. I love to see stuff that's influenced by her but isn't a straightforward adaptation. Partly because it means I don't know who done it. Uh <laughs> what a treat it is yeah, to, to see something and, and 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 not know what the solution's going to be. That's always been the case that the people have been inspired by Agatha Christie and long may it continue because some of the best Agatha Christie ish <laughs> productions are not necessarily written by Agatha Christie because they can play around with the format in, in a way that perhaps you can't do with something like murder on the Orient express, for example. Yeah. So uh, quickly, what do you regard as the best adaptation? And, and along with that, maybe the most faithful, they, I guess they don't necessarily need to be the same answer. Something no, to be very they, faithful and not necessarily be that entertaining or well executed. So, of those yeah. two, which would you say fall into those two categories? 
So for me, the best is is Witness for the Prosecution, which I just adore and I think is absolutely perfect. But I also love Evil Under the Sun, the Peter Ustinov film from 1982, because that for me is just so entertaining as well as it actually manages to to remove bits from the book that don't work that well on screen. So there's whole subplots in the book about like smuggling and a bit of, uh, you know, voodoo even at one point, I think, and all this very strange stuff that isn't needed. And so I love that. I, that, that for me, you know, if I'm ever unwell and I want to watch a movie, Evil Under the Sun is my sort of couch, lie down, watch that film. So, so they're the best. In terms of actually being close to the source material i think probably merger on the orient express in terms of films is a pretty good shout the 1974 one with finney because they were so nervous at the time to get the rights and they were not easy to get that they sort of had to be really close to it but that doesn't mean that it's just people reading stuff off the page you get some beautifully cinematic stuff the flashback at the beginning is wonderful the score is fantastic you know the music um so, so yeah, you can do it like that and it can still really, really work. I don't think all of her novels work like that, but that one particularly seems to. Okay. Well, uh, we've run a bit long, but uh, it's been a very rich conversation, so no regrets. Now I come to the, the question that I ask all my guests, and that is, what would you say is your most memorable movie-going experience? So when I was young, I lived sort of 10, 11 miles from the closest city and therefore closest cinema. So it was a really rare treat for us to ever go to the cinema. And I have a real strong memory of going to see Jurassic Park, age 11, I guess, with my mum and my sister, my dad. Again, my, I said before, my dad was not a big film fan. And it was so difficult to get tickets to see Jurassic Park because it was so popular that you had to go in queue. Like we had to go and stand in line before, uh, which I've never done before or since to go and see a movie. But that was how popular Jurassic Park was, you know, a couple of weekends in from its release. And I remember seeing it and us just absolutely loving it, it being such a good, you know, jumping at that scare that, that, that you know, Jurassic Park is back in business and the dinosaur comes through and just loving it. But the big memory for me is that it was a lovely day out for, for my family, but also I remember being, I think, in the car on the way back. And my dad, so this is 1993, just not quite being able to get his head around the fact that it was computer-generated dinosaurs. And obviously they're not all CGI. There are some practical ones as well, including part of the T-Rex and whatever. But just that whole idea that, that computers had invented those dinosaurs, like he just couldn't quite work that out. And I, I still say it now to my students, I tell that story now, that we're so used to the idea of CGI enhancing or, or doing whatever to movies, that actually it's a pretty recent concept, the idea that you could create characters of some kind with with cgi yeah i remember seeing that for the first time it was i think i may have been uh, i believe i was still working at warner brothers and i think we'd had a a screening of it that we were uh, able to attend but in any case i remember walking out of it thinking well i guess ray harryhausen's out of a job (laughs) but uh anyway well, uh, thanks again for joining me uh, on this. This has been a great discussion, and I'm happy to be schooled by uh, someone who has so much knowledge of an area that I'm admittedly somewhat weak on, but uh, nevertheless have an appreciation for. Remind me again, your your podcast, when is... The podcast is called The Swinging Christies. The Swinging uh, Christies. And- 
Yeah, it's about Agatha Christie in the 1960s. You can find us. Anyway, we've covered so far sex and money, and we're going to do fashion shortly. Rock and roll we've covered as well. So lots of things about how Agatha Christie, including the films, but Agatha Christie generally in the 60s. Okay, um, great. Excellent. And as usual, I want to invite people to check out your terrific book, Agatha Christie on Screen. There'll be a link for that on the bookshelf page of the Movie Nights and Matinees website. And on that note, uh, once again, Mark, thank you for joining me on Movie Nights and Matinees. Thank you, Bill. That was a great chat. As mentioned, you can check out Mark's book, Agatha Christie on Screen, by way of a link on the bookshelf page of the Movie Nights and Matinees website. And on the screening room page, you'll find links to a variety of feature films that have been adapted from Dame Agatha's extensive writings. Don't forget to click on the follow, subscribe, or download button wherever you listen, and please leave a rating, and where possible, a review. Don't be shy. Tell the world how much you love the podcast. Or even if you just sort of like it. Also, be sure to swing by the Movie Nights and Matinees Facebook page, where you can leave comments, ask questions, share insights and stock tips, and sometimes find additional photos and such related to the podcast episode topics. Be sure to come back in a couple of weeks for episode 28, when Jim Reed should once again be riding shotgun. Until then... The management of this theater suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture, you will not divulge to anyone the secret of the ending 